had a nice um, family gathering yesterday morning at Olivia's. She made us some cinnamon rolls, and we had coffee, and all the family was sitting around. So she said, what are you preaching on tomorrow, Mom? And I normally don't title things, and so as soon as I told her my title, I was really upset that I titled it because of what she said. So anyway, title of today's (laughs) message is New Year, Same Devil. I said that to her, and she went, oh my gosh, Mom, like, that's a tweetable moment, like, New Year, Same Devil. Well, first of all, I'm not on Twitter, so I really don't care about that. And then she said, no, Mom, they're like, you got to, like, you got to drop that like it's hot. (laughs) She said, that's like a T.D. Jakes, like, like, New Year, Same Devil. And I'm like, letting y'all know, I do love the title, but I am no T.D. Jakes. I know that it sounds great, and it sounds like this big tweetable moment. I want it to get in our hearts, though this morning, okay? New year, same devil. We're going to talk about that. We're going to unpack it a little bit. Um, And who knows, maybe I'll give TD my notes and he can drop it like it's hot, right? I'm going to drop it Robin Evans style. Y'all good with that? All right. All right. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for who you are. We thank you, God, that you are so good. You are so faithful. You are so kind. And Lord, I thank you that right now you show up. I thank you that you take over my thoughts, what I've prepared, what I've planned. And God, you work through me. I'm your vessel this morning. I thank you from the top of my head to the soles of my feet that you have your way in this place. I thank you that our hearts are open, our minds are open. And I thank you that we receive the word of God today for it to be planted into our hearts. And when we leave this place today, we leave differently. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so I have never been so so grateful as I was that this year's cheerleading season ended. So it was so bittersweet. Sella's my last, she's a little caboose, right? It's her senior year, and I was so hopeful for so many things with this. It's like my 23rd year in cheerleading. I know cheerleading means not a lot to y'all, but when you've got four girls and three of them were cheerleaders, it has been so much of what we what we've done but this year in particular whoo i was glad when december hit and that last competition was over because this year was absolutely the worst cheerleading year that any of us in my family have ever had. So it just was that kind of thing. I was hopeful that it would be so much more. We went into it with high hopes, high anticipations for, you know, just going out with a bang, and they did go out with a bang. If you could have seen them at state, um, no offense, Stella, but was it not? Yeah, it, yeah, it just was, um, it just was one of those things. I've been in sports um, 30 years with my my kids in and out of different things, and never, ever, ever have I ever had to have a meeting with coaches or with principals or with athletic directors. We're just not those parents. We are not the parents who are coming out on the field and going to have conversations. We just are. <laughs> we are. We're not those. If, if something happens, it is it is our responsibility. The teacher has done her job. The coach has done his or her job, and we do not interfere in that. This year, however, just just was one of those moments. How many of you are glad sometimes that the hands of time move forward? So, and you can just you can just escape that moment just because it's over. Like there's no going back. She's not going back to high school. It's over. It's finished. 
Kaboom. Sometimes, most often, time, however, is not what wins our battles for us. And so many times people find themselves the first, second, third, fourth week into January thinking, what the heck? Like the clock turned, right? It's a new year, right? 2023 is over, right? So why is this demon that had my back and was taunting me all year in 2023 still following me into this year? I thought that things would be different. I thought that my marriage would suddenly be okay. I thought that I would have a handle on my health, that it would suddenly be something that I'm controlling. I thought that this temper or this anger or this rage that I feel that I submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ at the turn of the year, I just thought that 2024 would be different. And more often than not, we find ourselves facing some of the same giants that we have faced not only in 2023, But in 2022, 2021, you see, most of our New Year's resolutions are not new ideas. Most of them are not just we woke up and thought, whoo, I'm going to do this suddenly. We, We begin to make New Year's resolutions around the thought and the idea of putting our hand to the plow one more time in a serious effort to really make a difference and an impact and really grab hold of that thing that we wanted to do. I find my own self doing it when I have told myself for three years probably that I was going to write a book. Have I written? No. I have paragraphs. I have sentences. I have outlines. Do I have a book written? No. Am I going to write a book? Yes. But however, that still that little demon just chases me all the time. Some of you have things that you wish were different already, even though we're just three weeks in. We're going to talk about some of those things today. How many of you want to shift something in the atmosphere? You want to shift something in your life. You want to shift that thing, shift from defeat to victory. We are going to talk about victory this morning because I know I want victory for me, but when I think about you all and I watch your lives, I want victory. I don't like seeing people, myself, my family, or my friends go through the same thing year after year after year or month after month after month after month. And so we're going to grab hold of some of those things today. I want you to lean in and I want you to think about the things in your life that you know that you want to change. I want you to think about the things that you know that the enemy doesn't have access to, yet he keeps wreaking havoc in. Your life does not belong to him. You have been bought with a price and you belong to the one who has given you victory. So it's time that we, as God's people, understand and learn and know how to walk in that victory. Repeating battles. I don't like repeating battles. The first four years of my marriage, Mark was in a repeated battle. You've heard him talk about it before, but the fear and the torment and the anxiety that he lived under, it was crippling. And it didn't get better just because a clock turned. He wasn't delivered from it just because time kept going by. It was a repeating battle where he thought that he was going to die if he went into the hospital and prayed for somebody. I said, Mark, this isn't going to go very well. I mean, we're in ministry, so you tell me how you're going to not go in a hospital and pray for somebody because you feel like you're going to come out with whatever it is that they've got. He couldn't run because he was scared if his heart rate got up, he would pass out and he would die. He couldn't breathe in the middle of the night because he would have anxiety and panic attacks and he would jump up and call himself praying. He wasn't praying. He was panicking. 
laying on the floor in panic, begging God, but not taking authority over his life and submitting his life and his thoughts and his mind to the power and the will of God. There's a difference in panicking about yesterday. There's a difference in being tired about yesterday and being um, in despair about yesterday, feeling hopeless about yesterday, a difference in, in wanting desperately for God to show up and do something and crying out to him over and over and over. There's a difference in that versus taking up your position and your place as a child of God and walking out the things that you know that God has for you. And I believe that in 2024, that is the people that we need to be. It is the people that we are created to be. The Bible says that we have been created the head and not the tail. We've been created above and not beneath. We've been created, the Bible says, with absolutely everything we need for life and godliness right now in this place. So there's no demon of hell, no battle of yesterday, no torment that's come to taunt you that has any authority over your life. That, that you have to just drag along with you, that you just have to drag it and drag it and drag it. Not the kind of God we serve, and it's not the kind of day that today is. Amen? We're going to shift. We are going to make a shift. New year, and we're going to make a shift. When I first got born again, I honestly, I think I honestly thought that, that this Christian life would be, I don't know, just uh, maybe like a Laura Ingalls tiptoeing through the, just tiptoeing through the wilderness and just, oh, just so great and romantic and just all the things. I just kind of felt like God was just going to dump all this stuff right in my lap. All this stuff that I would hear preached about, right? His goodness and his kindness and the gift of salvation that he had already so freely given me. I just thought, well, yeah, that's just how it's going to go. I, I specifically thought this, not just because of, of an inward faith or, or me wanting to please God and believe everything, but I thought that because I, I knew and I recognized he's my dad. We talked about that a little bit at the daughter's conference. I came from a very dysfunctional background. I had two fathers before God sent the father that I now have. My first father was a seed-bearing father, meaning that all he did was give my mom a seed. He was married. She didn't know it. She met him in a bar somewhere in Atlanta, got pregnant with me. 30 years later, I meet the brother who was in his wife's womb at the same time that I was in my mama's womb. So he was nowhere to be seen. She marries a, a guy who adopts me when I was two, gave me his name, took care of us. But in the middle of their divorce three years later, while on the telephone with my mother, he decided to commit suicide while she was talking to him. She later gets her life together and meets my father, who is my dad and is a tremendous blessing in my life. But she met him and he was in prison and she married him. But the grace of God showed up, of course, and it was good. And my life story has been good. But if you take a little girl who comes from that kind of brokenness and that kind of history with fathers, you can see why when God said, I'm going to be your dad, and everything you need I've got for you, everything, absolutely everything you need. So I came to him with just that, that fresh baby thing of bring it on. And how many of you know when you first get born again, it sometimes feels like that anyway, right? Do y'all remember those days of right when you're saved and you just feel like, you feel like you could believe for 
you, like you could be transported. You have that much faith and belief that God's just going to just literally move the mountain right in front of you with, with no effort whatsoever. It feels like that that is how he answers spirits. The longer we walk with Jesus, though, it's not that he, his power is diminished or that he is not as sweet or as good or as kind as he was, but we begin to bump into the plan and the tactics of the enemy that have always been present to rob, steal, kill, and destroy the life of God. He was present in the book of Genesis. He's been present in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And even though Jesus went to the cross and defeated him and took back the keys and gave them to us, the Bible says that he is a little sneaky prowler who just sneaks around looking, trying to find ways to rob the life of God from us. And it wasn't until I got older that I thought, gosh, I'm in a battle. I don't always like war. Do you guys like war? Can't stand war. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians is writing to faithful Christ followers. That's what Ephesians 1.1 says. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. Who in here? Faithful follower of Christ Jesus. It's all of us, right? If you're not born again this morning, we will give you some time and some conversation to have that talk with the Lord. Otherwise, all of you who are born again, blood-bought, children of the King, listen to what Paul tells us. He proceeds and continues in the book of Ephesians telling us how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to live here on the planet, how we're supposed to get along with one another, how we're supposed to get along with employers, how we're supposed to take note of the grace and the mercy and the truth of who God is, how we're supposed to take this faith and incorporate it into our life. And then we get to the last chapter of Ephesians. Here's what I don't always like. Ephesians 6, chapter 10 says, here's my final word. He's in prison while he's writing this. This is my final word. I need you to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. I don't like that. I'm in a battle. I'm in a war. Armor is indicative of war. This is not some, we're, we're, our Christian life is not like a Christian fashion show where we just tiptoe through the tulips wearing all the great promises of God. What we wear are, is his armor. We wear his armor on our head and our chest and our belt and our feet. We are soldiers. We're soldiers. Did you know that when you enlisted with the Lord that you enlisted to be one of his soldiers and you've got battles? You've got battles that not only do you have to fight, you've got battles that he's given you everything you need to overcome. Absolutely everything. But we find ourselves in this spot of carrying them with us year after year after year and not walking in the victory that he has for us. We're going to talk about that just for a minute before we head to the shift and how we're going to shift some of the, these things around. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17 this morning. I'm going to pull it up here because I don't always like reading behind me. We're going to talk about David and Goliath a little bit today. 
Most of you who have been born or reared in the South, I'm sure have heard of David and Goliath. You've heard of the little shepherd boy and his five little stones. We're not going to the stones today, but we're going to pull some stuff out of this because there was a shift that occurred in that battle that day. There were conversations that had taken place. There was a mode of operation that was happening. And the Israelites were gaining zero ground. Zero ground. And David enters the scene and some things start to shift. So we're going to look just briefly at some things. 1 Samuel 17 verse 1 through 7 says this. Says the Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Sakah and Judah in Azekah and Ephes Damim. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with a valley in between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion, He wasn't a Philistine loser. He wasn't just a Philistine officer. He wasn't just a Philistine soldier. He was a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was heavy and thick like a weaver's beam tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Let me explain something to you about your enemy. I know that we like to say that he's, he's a lion that prowls, but all of his teeth have been taken out. Have y'all heard that before? Like, he's just a little toothless lion that comes, comes out of you. Your enemy is skilled, and he is skilled at knowing you. The Bible says that he's been looking at you. He's not a novice. He's not weak and wimpy. The Bible says that he's crafty, he's deceitful, he's sly. And the Bible says that he knows you. He's been studying you. He's looking in 1 Peter, the Bible says, for a way to make his way in so that he can wreak havoc in your life. I don't understand how we think that an enemy can come for Eve at her most vulnerable moment and know her and know what would tempt her and know what would tease her, know what carrot to dangle in front of her, and that he would again show up and do that with Jesus in the book of Matthew when he's been fasting and he would begin to tempt Jesus with all of the things that mean something to him. And we think that somehow that we are going to be exempt from being known by him and being studied by him and being tempted by him. That's just not the case. Our enemy is slick. And although he's a defeated foe, he is doing everything that he can to wreak havoc in the life of God's people. He wants to rob and steal and kill from you, John 10.10 says. He wants to rob the word from you. He wants to rob life from you. He wants to rob victory from you. He wants to rob peace from you and joy from you. All of the provision that Christ has died to give you, he wants to rob that from you and from us. And hence, we find ourselves in these battles, right? 
Fear was no accident. It was no accident for Mark's battle to be fear. It was not just some random thing that bumped into him in 1989 when his wife was killed by a drunk driver. Mark had been dealing with fear from the time that he was a little bitty boy. He would wake up in the middle of the night and feel like he couldn't breathe. He would have to have his parents come pray for him because he felt like he couldn't breathe. He felt like he was going to die. This thing latched onto him very, very early in life. Perfectionism and control, checking all the little good girl boxes, it wasn't a thing that just happened upon me. It was a thing that I carried with me year after year after year because of who I was when I was young. And the enemy began to see some loopholes, some things that he could get in, some areas that he could tempt me with. A little girl who has no control and lives in chaos her whole life, how many of you know she's going to be tempted very much by the idea of something perfect and something she can hold? And the same thing is true with you. He knows you. He knows what you face in your life. He knows what tempts you. He knows what can pull you awry. He knows whether it's anger or hatred or bitterness or jealousy or insecurity. He knows if it's fear or anxiety or overthinking. He knows if it is sadness and depression. He knows exactly what it is and what it has been, and he dangles it in front of you. Just like a champion who would need to know how to take somebody out. Goliath was a champion, and he was having his way with the Israelites. He was having his way in conversation with him. He was having his way in keeping them from from, um, advancing. He's crafty, and he's manipulative. And his goal is that by the end of 2024, you wouldn't have it dealt with either, and that 2025 would get here, and then 2026... And then 10 years would pass and would be the same old, same old. How many of you have had the same old, same old go on long enough? The same old, same old. God wants to deal with the same old, same old. First Samuel 17, 8 says this. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. How many of you have ever been taunted? He's taunting them. He's mocking them. He's playing with them. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called, I am the Philistine champion, but you, you're only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we'll be your slaves. But if I kill him, you'll get to be our slaves. Now, this is the people who had been delivered, right? These are God's people, God's chosen, who are having a conversation with the enemy. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who's going to fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply, deeply shaken. I have so many problems with this passage of Scripture. First of all, I'm like, how many... How close do you want to be to the enemy that you can actually hear him taunt you? I don't want to be close to an enemy where I hear him whisper in my ear the things that he's going to do. If there was a robber on the outside of my house, which last night Mark was not home, I hear some kind of ding go off. I don't know what it was. I don't know, I don't know if it was the dryer, the refrigerator, the freezer, or the front door dinging of the code to get in. So I call Sophia downstairs. I'm like, get Joey up here now. So Joey comes up. I I think he may have had a knife. 
I'm not sure. But we stood in front of the door because I didn't want to go to the door by myself. Imagine an enemy standing in my yard, screaming at me, saying, I'm about to come into your house, and I'm going to blah, 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 blah. Right? I'm going to... I'm going to take your children. I'm going to take your things. I'm going to take you. I'm going to kill you. Do you think I would sit there and have a conversation? I'm not going to have a conversation with the enemy. They were in such close proximity. They didn't just hear him. They talked to him or allowed him to talk to them for 40 days. How many days are too many days to have a conversation with the enemy? The right answer None. No days. No days do we need to sit around as God's people lending our ear to the voice of the enemy. Just lending our ear and letting him speak whatever he wants to speak and say whatever he wants to say and fill our mind with doubt and confusion. The Bible says at the end of this they were tormented and terrified. They were terrified because they had been sitting in close proximity and frequency to the enemy. Sometimes... We sit in close proximity with the enemy because we like to buddy up with him a little bit. I mean, unforgiveness is not going to take us out today. Right? So we can carry unforgiveness around in our hip pocket. We can still come to church. We can still worship. We can still sing his praise. We don't have to talk to her. We don't have to message her. We can block her on Facebook. We can all the stuff, right? And we just carry unforgiveness around close to us because we don't want to deal with it. Porn isn't going to kill us today, right? We can carry that around in our hip pocket too and not deal with it, not think anything about it. I mean, after all, we're not in a relationship. Or we are, and our wife's just not cutting it. Doubt and unbelief aren't going to kill us today, right? I mean, we don't have to believe everything today. I mean, it's okay for me to be a little bit scared today. Being a perfectionist isn't going to kill me today. I'm going to make good grades. I'm going to get to check some boxes off, so I'm going to carry it around with me just a little bit more, my own works, my own righteousness, my own goodness. It's not going to destroy me today. And we just buddy up with some of these things that at the end of the day will be the very thing that hangs you. Unforgiveness will turn to bitterness. The Bible says bitterness rots our very bones. Sexual immorality never says enough. Never says enough. You give a little today and tomorrow it's going to want more and more and more and more and more. Some of you need to distance yourself from your enemy. You're not doing yourself any favors by having close conversation with him. They talked with him so long, listened to him for so long, that he began to define their God and their own self. He said to them, you're only the servants of Saul. trying to define who God's people is. Do you know who who they were? 
as the servants of Saul, as the servants of Saul, they were Israelites. Do you know who the Israelites were? They were God's chosen people who he had called and pulled into himself to have as his own special people who he fed and cared for, who he led, who he told, I'm going to be with you in battle every step of the way. Every victory you've got is mine. And he's mocking them. You're just Saul's kid. Allowing themselves to be defined by the enemy, that taunting voice, that thing that just doesn't leave and it just stays and stays and stays. I remember being tormented and taunted one time by the enemy for probably about two months. Two months of torment is too long. I remember the enemy telling me that I was going to die in childbirth with Stella. I don't know why he told me that. I don't know where it came from, but I know that I know that it was there. And I was tormented every morning and every night, every morning and every night. They had written OMA on my chart, which simply means over maternal age. So, I mean, I mean, 50-year-olds are having babies, right? So I wasn't that old. So they wrote OMA on it, and it's just like this seed of doubt and darkness and confusion got in there. And I would go to bed hearing the whisper of the enemy, you're going to die. Nobody will be here to raise her. You're going to die. Mark's going to be all alone. I would wake up in the morning, you're going to die. You can't breathe. You're having a panic attack. Over and over and over and over, I remember walking on the streets of New York because we had gone there for Mark's 40th birthday, um, which I gave him Stella and a trip to New York. So for his 40th. So, but I remember walking on those streets, having to go hide behind buildings because I was having a panic attack and didn't want my friend to see me. With torment, the enemy just whispering over and over and over and over. People, he has no authority to do that. You need to distance yourself. You need to turn that radio off. You need to put it down. You need to back away. You need to get somewhere where you can get a word from God, and that is what you need to rehearse. They were rehearsing the things that the enemy had played to them. God delivered me, and he will deliver you. I promise you, he can deliver you from taunts of the enemy. The enemy doesn't fight fair that God gives us every weapon that we need to begin to shift things, to begin to shift the atmosphere, to begin to shift the battles that took place. And that's exactly what David did when he came on the scene. He began to shift what was going on. The Bible says that Jesse begins to have a conversation with David to send him to Saul's camp. In verse 20, David left the sheep with another shepherd. And he set out early the next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelites and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, so he just gets there, he hears the enemy, the champion. The one, right? Show up. The Philistine champion from Gath, he came out from the Philistine ranks, and David heard him, heard the shouts of his usual taunt to the army of Israel. Before we say what, what he said, is he the only one? I find it so hard to believe that in an entire army of people, of God's people, he was the only one who recognized, hey, you're being taunted. You're being fooled. You're being played. You don't have to be fooled, and you don't have to be played. Your God is still your God, which is what David is about to tell him as he gets here. He asks the soldier standing nearby. 
in verse, I skipped some verses for y'all. Um, verse 26, David asked the soldier standing nearby, what, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? And here's, here's what he did. He turned the identification around and he said, who is this pagan? This pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God. Who is this enemy that speaks to you? That he's allowed to defy you, that he's allowed to defy God, that he's allowed to define you, that he's allowed to make bargains with you, that he's allowed to say, if you do this, I'll do this. Who has given him that spot in your life to dictate anything about your life or where you're headed or what God wants to do for you? Who is it? You hold the keys to the authority of your life. You hold the key to your ear gate, your mouth gate, to your feet, to where they go, to your hands, to what they touch. You hold the keys to what you allow in and what you allow out of your life. Don't let the enemy defy the God that lives on the inside of you. You have the king of kings. Do you all know what that means? The king of kings and the Lord of lords. I know we come in here and we worship him, right? We did it today. We lifted our hands to him. We looked up to him. We sang songs and praises to him. Do you know where he abides? Where his home is? He lives on the inside of you. That's incredible. And we're letting words of fear and torment dictate what he can do and what he can't do when he has his abide on the inside of us. And David knew, and he said, "Uh uh-uh, this is not going to happen. Does anybody here, anybody, anybody here know that he's defying our God? David knew who his God was. It would have done the Israelites a lot to know who God was. Let's talk just a minute about who God was for them. This is what the Bible says. It is not even an exhaustive list. This is just a small little smidgen of the promises of God to Israel and God's people. And that includes us. Number one, he was their deliverer. Exodus 6, 6 says he was their deliverer. He was the same. He was constant. No shadow of turning was in him. Deuteronomy 6, 4, if he said it, he meant it. No shadow of turning. He was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's from everlasting to everlasting, 1 Chronicles 16. He's the author and finisher of faith, Hebrews 12. He's able, Matthew 3, 9. He's love, 1 John 4. He's among us and in our midst, Deuteronomy 6, 15. He is truth, John 3.33. He is for you. He is faithful. He is gracious and generous, Exodus 34 said. He is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4 says. He is great and mighty and awesome, Psalms 24.8 says. He is with us in battle, Deuteronomy 24 says. He is a great and mighty warrior, Exodus 15. Exodus 6.7, he takes them as their people and he said, I will take you and I will be your God. That's just a very small smidgen of anything that they could have held on to about who their God was. And David shows up on the scene, and he's the only one who remembers. He's the only one who says, he's defying my God. He's defying who you are. Let me tell you something. The enemy is defying God in your life when he starts winning victories and you start dragging him around on a ball and a chain 
year after year after year after year. It's not your inheritance. It's not your promise. Your promise is not that you're going to have a battle that you have to face year after year and over and over and over again. The Bible says that our lot is victory. The Bible says that our lot is that we are overcomers. The Bible says that our lot is that he has done everything for us already, predestined us for great things. It's what the Bible says, and I want us to live like this. Here is what the Bible says about us and who we are. We don't need to let the enemy define us. We are a great nation, a great name, a blessing. He's to give us land, provision, victory. We're chosen. We're blameless. We're children of God. We're chosen, justified, redeemed. We are free from the power of sin and death. We're an overcomer. We are an heir. We are accepted. We are wise. We are victorious. We are the righteousness of God. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We're brought near by the blood of Christ. We are God's workmanship. We are citizens of heaven, and we are complete in Christ. That list is not exhaustive either. There is promise after promise after promise after promise for who Jesus has proclaimed you to be in this day and age. Not in the sweet by and by. Not something that we have to wait for. Not something that we only get when we pass away. Right now, it's who he's called us to be. So my question to you is, are you wanting to shift? Do you want to shift some things in your life? David did. He showed up. He says to the Philistine in verse 45, he replied to him, you come to me with a sword and with a spear. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's army, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And begins to tell him exactly what's going to happen. Today the Lord will conquer you. I will kill you. I will cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. But not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give it to us. He began to proclaim exactly what he was going to do to the enemy, exactly what was going to happen. There's not been a person who God has used in the Scripture. There's not been a person who has overcome and who has shown us the way to walk and that they haven't had to have a shift in their mindset and in their mentality, that they haven't had to look back at some things that were unpleasant that were unfruitful in their life, that they haven't decided I've got to turn a switch off there and I better turn the switch on of who God has called me to be. I think about Moses when he was on the backside of the mountain in the dust and in the desert, hiding out because he had killed Egyptians, hiding out from the very fact that God had called him and ordained him as a baby to be a savior, to be a deliverer for the people. And here he is on the backside of the mountain in the dust. God had to send a bush in front of him that was on fire but didn't burn up and say, hey, pay attention, look at me. I am the same I am that I was back then. And I need you to move. I need you to get up from here. I need you to go from this place. I need you to forget what's behind you and I need you to move ahead. I need you to let it go and move on. It's time to go back and it's time to set these people free. And it's exactly what he did. I think about Esther who was a little rejected, orphan, left alone, abandoned child whose uncle took her in. Sitting in the king's palace, a king who had already killed his first wife because she talked too much.
And God said to her, now's your moment. Now's your time. What do you think she had to think about? Do you think she had to think about the, who, the fact that, that she was not royalty? That she was just a little orphan kid? She had to make a switch. She had to turn her mindset. I think about Joseph. God had told him he was going to feed the nation, right? The very brothers who he told the dream to were the very brothers who sold him into slavery and left him for dead. And it wasn't just the next day that he just got up and was like, woo, right? Had to fight some battles. Had to face some accusations. I'm sure the taunting whisper of, you've been left for dead. You've been rejected. Your family doesn't love you. I'm sure the, the daunting whisper of, feed them? Why don't you go kill them? And he had to make a choice if he was going to be the hand and the provision of God during a famine or not. He had to make a choice to turn something off. I love the fact that we have a generation of people who like questions. The generations under me, they like questions. They like answers. They like knowing, why do y'all do what you do at church? Right? They're not just taking it at our word because we said it, but they want real answers. For some of them, it's been a real hard, hard thing, and they've been on journeys of deconstructing. Some of the things that they needed to deconstruct from have been good, but some of the things they're deconstructing from are not good, and babies are being thrown out with bathwater. And I'll tell you one of the babies that I don't like being thrown out with bathwater is confession. I cannot help it what somebody else did with confession. I can't help it if they named it and claimed it because they wanted a Cadillac or a new house or a mansion or a jet. I can't help it if they named it and claimed it and it didn't sit well with you what they were believing God for. But there is nowhere that you can read the Bible and you can determine that confession is not a scriptural, spiritual principle. If we go back to the book of Ephesians and we begin to look at the armor of God, we see that there is one for our head, there's one for our feet, there's one for our waist, there's one for our chest. The only offensive weapon that we get is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we're supposed to be yielding it and using it. And we don't use it. We keep our mouths shut. We stay quiet. We don't proclaim what needs to be proclaimed. Confession does not need to be thrown out of your life. It is how I have fought every battle that I have had. I have had to turn this off, and if I couldn't believe it in my heart, you better believe I could say it with my mouth. And I said it until I believed it. Some of you need to be saying some things today. I need to hear more from your life than your problem. I need to hear more from your life than what the enemy is doing. I need you to give a little bit of credence to what God has done, who he is, where he has taken you, what he has promised you, what he has equipped you with, and what your future looks like. We need to be proclaiming the Word of God in our life. And we don't need to be believing that that's just an old, old school, has been, done moment. That moment is not over. It's in the Bible. He created this world with the words of His mouth. The words of His mouth, He created everything. And we think that we're no different. I'm going to read to you. I'm going to ask the band to come on up. I'm going to read to you what's on my window, my mirror at home. I brought it with me today. When I had cancer, I had words on my mirror. When I was birthing my children, I had words on my mirror. 
When my marriage fell apart, I had words on my mirror. When I was in college, I had words on my mirror. Index cards filled over and over and over and over again. What are you saying about your life today? What are you saying about 2024 and the victories that you want in your life? What are you proclaiming about yourself and about your God and about who he is in your life? I can have what I say, Mark eleven twenty three says. My tongue has the power of life, Proverbs 18, 21. I'm putting my mascara on, fixing my hair, drying it, and I'm talking. Today's a new day filled with wonderful and infinite possibilities. I'm excited about today's opportunities. I am thankful for the sun, and I trust that everything is being worked out for my good today by my God. I'm very confident in my abilities to create a successful day. I'm focused, productive, engaged, and energized for my day. Open doors are mine. I'm thankful for all of the blessings in my life. I am worthy because of him of love, success, and abundance. I am healthy, happy, and whole in my mind, my body, my spirit, and my relationships. I am quick to forgive others. I attract positive and supportive people into my life. I have wonderful friends. My children have and continue to grow in both body and spirit, and they receive favor from both God and people. They are the head and not the tail, above and not beneath, and they lead their way in great wisdom. They live in great peace, and satisfaction is the fruit of all of their days. They are happy, successful, joyful, and fulfilled. This is true of my grandchildren also. My children know and recognize God's voice, and they have found their voice as well. They are not moved in fear, but in assurance and confidence wherever they go. My kids are blessed, healthy, happy, successful, and peaceful. They walk in abundance financially and relationally. Doors of opportunity are always available to them. They prosper in their homes, their jobs, their friendships, their money, their marriages, their health, and their families. My kids are fearless in all opportunities. My kids bring life to all they meet. My marriage is favorable. It's a picture of heaven displayed here on earth. My husband is patient and giving, kind and successful. He's wise. He has skills to accomplish his goals and dreams. His hand is prosperous to our family and the world. He is the head and not the tail, an overcomer in all ways and in all arenas. My husband makes wise decisions, and he helps others to do the same. He is free from fear and hindrances. He advances our family and his life to spaces of love and freedom, success and prosperity continually. Love for others is displayed in my husband's life for all to see. His testimony goes before him as a man who loves and leads well. My husband's words are wise, uplifting, and encouraging to all who hear them. My family is wise, blessed, protective, peaceful, happy, and prosperous. They enjoy their lives to the fullest extent and find success on every end of life. My family loves well. We love the Lord and people everywhere in all spaces and all arenas of life. My family has favor and is well-liked by peers, young and old. We are blessed with forever friends. My family is creative. 
My family loves life. We are brave and adventurous. We get the most out of life. Our experiences are fun. Our memories, both apart and together, are full of joy. We are a people of abundance. My family is wise, kind, blessed, and free. For 10,000 generations, my family walks and lives in supernatural prosperity, naturally, physically, financially, and spiritually. Stand to your feet this morning. What you say matters. What you say about your life matters. What you say about the battle that you're in right now matters. The Bible says this about the Word of God. It never, ever, ever, ever goes forth void. It always accomplishes what He has sent it to. I was always amazed when we lived in Sylvania. We had a little portico out front, which is just a, a brick porch. I literally had no plants on that brick porch. And every spring, I would find myself out there sitting in the cement grooves where one brick met another brick. And I would find myself out there plucking grass up. And I would always say, how'd grass grow in the brick? What's it doing here? Why am I having to pull out grass from this hard, stony place that isn't a place where grass belongs? The wind would blow the seeds from the nearby trees, the nearby weeds, the nearby grass, and lo and behold, it would just grow. It's how the Word of God is. It's a seed. It's a mighty, mighty, powerful, ongoing, never-ending, fruit-producing seed. You need to use it. You would be foolish not to use it. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your blessings. We do thank you for new seasons, God. We thank you for the turning of the clock. And we thank you that we can decree that 2024 is our year. That it will be our best year yet. Not because of luck. Not because of wishful thinking. Not because of begging you. Not because of bottles full of tears that you're collecting. But it will be our best year yet because we trust you and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are our God. We are your people. You are our deliverer. You are our provider. Shift us this morning, Father. Shift us, shift us, shift us, shift us. That we would learn to say no to the enemy. No, no to fear, no to bitterness, no to anger, no to hostility, no to sexual impurity, no to anxiety, no to depression. No to any label that the enemy would try to define us by and we would learn to say yes, yes to you, God. 
Yes to who you are. Yes to your will. Yes to your capability. Yes to your provision. Yes to your hand. Yes to your guidance. We are your kids and you are our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen and amen and amen.